MSW Media. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Monday, February 28th, 2022. Headlines today. The Manhattan DA has appointed a new attorney to run the Trump Organization investigation. The world unites behind Ukraine. The Oversight Committee says some of the documents Trump stole from the White House are too sensitive to be described in public. The FCC is probing the media and telecom sectors for Russian ownership ties in the wake of heavy sanctions, including against Putin himself. British Petroleum offloads 20 percent of its stake in Rosneft and Sweden and Germany send weapons to aid Ukraine. And Biden nominates Katanji Brown-Jackson to the Supreme Court. I'm your host, A.G. Hey, everybody, as you know, I'm on vacation. Those are our headlines. You can Google them. I'm going to have all of the links to the stories in my weekly research notes for patrons and our newsletter. I think the news is pretty evident today, but some really great news. I I was certain that Biden would nominate Katanji Brown-Jackson on Friday, and he did. And that's just incredible. And I'm looking forward to a smooth confirmation process, hopefully. Anyway, I have an incredible interview teed up for you with Barb McQuaid, former U.S. attorney, professor of law at University of Michigan. Her and I are going to discuss her piece, her 27-page piece out for just security, where she basically does a a mock-up of what charges against the former president could look like because of his obstruction of an official proceeding and his conspiracy to defraud the United States. So we're going to go over that. I hope you enjoy the interview. And I'm enjoying my little bit of a time off. So thank you for that. Here we go. Let me cue this up. This is Barb McQuaid. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Happy to be joined today by my friend, former U.S. attorney and law professor at University of Michigan, Barb McQuaid. Barb, hello. Thanks so much. Glad to be with you. I am so glad to talk to you because just a few days ago, you put out a very comprehensive sort of mock-up of what a charge against the former president would look like in his trying to obstruct Congress from certifying the electoral votes for Biden's victory. And uh, I wanted to ask you, what prompted you to put that together? I mean, because this looks like a filing that you would see for for charges. And and I wanted to know what prompted you to put that together and the, the specific charges that you were bringing up. Yeah. You know, um, a lot of people talk about couldn't Trump be charged right now for his activity on January 6th. And so I thought, well, let's collect all the evidence that is out there in the public domain. And certainly there may be additional evidence that is not publicly known. But I think sometimes when people talk about, you know, this ought to be a crime, he ought to be charged. It's important to really think granularly in the kinds of what is the charge? What are the elements and what facts are out there to support those elements. So this prosecution memo is the type of thing prosecutors actually prepare when they want to gather all that evidence into one document that can be shared with their supervisors and all the way up the chain of command so that everybody can kind of look at it and be on the same page to make that assessment. And so um, I thought it was especially useful to gather in one place all of the facts. So the proposed charges are things that, you know, many people have been talking about, like conspiracy to defraud the United States and Uh, obstruction of an official proceeding. And both of those require proof of knowledge or intent that what you're doing is wrongful. 
So it would require proof that Donald Trump knew that there was no fraud in the election, that Joe Biden won the election. And so I wanted to kind of gather in one place all that evidence to see what would that look like? Is there enough to prove a case here? And your determination was that there is enough to not only obtain, but sustain a conviction. And that's one of the sort of bars that a prosecutor sort of, well, definitely has to has to show in order to go forward with with charging. And these two, by the way, these these two crimes are 18 U.S. Code 371, which was used against Manafort, for example, and uh, 18 U.S. Code 1512 C2, which I've been talking about for a very long time, structuring an official proceeding. And that is easier, my understanding, maybe you can help me out here, easier to prove than a seditious conspiracy charge, but carries the same sentence. Can you talk a little bit about why you didn't include seditious conspiracy or obstructing an officer, for example, which is a lot of the oath keepers are are facing in their seditious conspiracy charges as well? Yes. So for, for one, seditious conspiracy requires the use of force. Now, it may very well be that a case can be made that Donald Trump conspired with the people who were at the Capitol on January 6th who used force to stop that official proceeding. But I don't think you need to go there to be able to charge a case. I think it might be difficult to prove that conspiracy. You know, Donald Trump made those statements on the ellipse that kind of riled up the crowd and then led to this attack. I don't know that there's evidence there that he either knew that or agreed with them in advance. But I think the charges that I have proposed don't require that. It's enough that he pressured Mike Pence to try to thwart the election. Um, and the one about um, obstructing an official in his uh, his job duties, I think that one could be charged under my theory. I put it in there as sort of a catch-all. And here are some other charges as well. The penalties for that one are a little bit less, so I didn't focus on it. But I do think you could charge that here. And again, that one just requires to wrongfully obstruct a officer of the United States from performing his official duties. And so pressuring Pence to fail to fulfill his duties to count the votes on January 6th would meet that standard, I think. And what if any of the Pence documents surrounding or communications surrounding the pressure campaign to to get Pence to throw out electors? What if any of those were destroyed? Some of the taped up, destroyed confetti type documents received by by the National Archives, could then an obstruction charge be thrown in? Because uh, while the Presidential Records Act doesn't really have much teeth and is, is, it seems sort of like a, something that, that usually isn't charged, it seems if, that if he destroyed documents in this you know, Pence pressure campaign or in his impeachment for January 6th, that then maybe obstruction could be added. Yes. And in fact, when people do that, that's like the greatest gift to prosecutors ever, because sometimes you can't prove the big thing, but you can prove that they tried to hide it. And that's such good, uh, it's good evidence of consciousness of guilt of the big thing, but it's also a separate crime in and of itself. And sometimes it's the only thing you can charge. But if Donald Trump did destroy documents by tearing them up or flushing them down the toilet or taking them to Mar-a-Lago for the purpose of concealing his communications with Mike Pence or others relating to this effort, then that could be alone a separate charge. So um, that is certainly something that ought to be investigated. Right. But it wasn't included here because we don't have evidence that those were documents that were destroyed. You were just simply going on evidence that we currently have in the public discourse, which is enough to bring those two charges and sustain. Talk a little bit about meeting the the standard of sustaining Mm -hmm. that conviction, because it's a very important piece that a lot of folks leave out. 
You're right. And so when a prosecutor under DOJ guidance is considering a case, they have to think about not just can I prove it? And, and sometimes that is, does it have jury appeal? You know, is is a jury going to feel riled up about this? But is there any issue on appeal that could mean that later we're going to lose the case? So you have to be taking you know the long view that this is a case that is not only attractive on its facts, but is legally sound. And I submit here, once you see all the evidence together, it really does become overwhelming. You know, the hardest part in this case, I think, is proving Trump's knowledge. What he did with regard to Mike Pence to pressure him, I think is pretty easy. It's it's in the public domain. He made public statements at the rally. He sent tweets. He put out statements. And there's also reporting that he had private conversations with Pence as to the same, that he was supposed to derail that count on January 6th. But it's only corrupt. It's only wrongful if Trump knows that he didn't really win the election, if he knows that Joe Biden won at fair and square. And if you look at the evidence that is out there, it's actually pretty overwhelming. His cybersecurity director, Chris Krebs at at DHS, uh, issues a statement that there's no fraud. William Barr, his handpicked AG, issues a statement that there's no uh, fraud. His handpicked director of national intelligence, John Ratcliffe, tells him there's no fraud. His own campaign writes a memo internally in in quite a bit of detail saying that there's no fraud. Uh, Brad Raffensperger, the secretary of state of Georgia, tells him there's no fraud in Georgia. When he persists after William Barr leaves with his successors at DOJ, Jeffrey Rosen and Rich Donahue, and says, I'm going to do this. We're going to send this letter to all these states telling them they ought to throw out the electors uh, that the voters have selected and substitute their own. And I'm going to replace you with this guy, Clark. There is a threat, a threat of a mass resignation at DOJ and White House lawyers. And only when that happens does Trump back down from that part of the plan. But he still continues to pressure Mike Pence. And so he has lost 61 out of 62 lawsuits. And the only one he wins is on some issue relating to affidavits, not this issue about whether there was fraud in the election. And so by January 6th, there is overwhelming evidence that there is no fraud. In fact, there's not a scintilla in the words of one court that there is any evidence of fraud. He just made it up and he knows he made it up. And so um, there is this uh, jury instruction that goes something like this. Because we cannot read the minds of other people, jurors must make reasonable inferences based on their common sense and the totality of the circumstances about what was in someone's mind. And a person cannot be willfully blind. That is, they cannot uh, ignore the high probability of a fact that is true or not true by turning a blind eye just because they want that to be the case. Mm. And so I think here, the evidence that Trump knew there was no fraud in this election is overwhelming. I've heard a lawyer make this analogy before in arguing this matter to a jury. A person may insist that the world is flat. But at some point, after we've heard from scientists that the world is round, and after seeing photos from space that the world is round, and the person continues to say that the, the world is flat, at some point we don't believe them. And we believe that they know the world is round, just the way the rest of us do. And I think we might be in that territory with Donald Trump. I think there's a strong case that can be made. Yeah. And uh, in the, you know, with specifically drilling down into the Raffensburger thing, saying, you know, oh, I've probably won by 400,000 votes, but I only need 11,780. Um, that's against Georgia law, but also kind of goes towards the totality of the evidence that you're mm-hmm. talking is totality of the circumstances. And finally, I wanted to ask you about prosecutorial discretion, because yeah. you say that it could be very difficult to get a fair jury here. There would have to be extensive voir dire. And then you also talk about the fact that this is a former president and, and you you bring up sort of like what any good doctoral dissertation includes, which is the limitations, the potential limitations to to the case. And 
How do those get overcome and, and what are some of those limitations? I'm very impressed, E.G., because you clearly read to the end of the 27-page single-space memo. This is a really important question. You know, when prosecutors, as directed by DOJ policy, are considering bringing charges, they look not just to the legal prong, which is can we bring these charges? Can we obtain and sustain a conviction? But they look at a second and probably more important question, which is, is this in the best interest of justice? Does it advance a substantial federal interest? Do we need to charge this case criminally, or is there some other adequate remedy that is out there? And ultimately, I conclude, in my view, that yes, it is necessary. Uh, there are dangers. You know, certainly, we have never before seen a former president charged criminally for the conduct, uh, his conduct in office, and it's a dangerous precedent, perhaps, to set. You know, you could imagine if Trump were to return to power, for example, using the Justice Department to go after his political enemies or his predecessor, Joe Biden or Hillary Clinton. It could be really dangerous, and you have to think about that. There's also a worry that you could lose, that a jury, it might be difficult to find 12 people who would decide unanimously that Donald Trump is guilty of a crime. So that's a real thing, a litigation risk. I think there's a worry that for someone like Merrick Garland, who I think was selected by Joe Biden for the very important purpose of restoring trust at the Department of Justice and independence, that there's a worry that this is simply based on partisan politics. But I think despite all of those negative consequences, there is also an even more important consequence, which is what happens if you don't hold Donald Trump accountable for this behavior? I worry that you know a big purpose of criminal prosecution is deterrence, that you want people to see that you can't get away with this kind of behavior. And I worry that if Donald Trump is not held accountable, then there will be a next time, whether that's Donald Trump or someone else who maybe does it better, is more sophisticated, and actually succeeds in subverting our democracy. And if you lose democracy, then all else is lost. We've lost the ability to govern our own country. And so I think that despite those potential negative consequences, you have to have the courage to take this case on. And finally, Barb, with the restoring faith piece, there are a lot of Americans just because of the nature of the Department of Justice work. They work slowly. They work quietly. Mm -hmm. And these don't politics don't happen in a vacuum that that silence and length is going to be filled with anger and impatience. Yeah, sure. What would you say to that crowd? Because it has been a long time, but we don't have anything to compare it to. And so how do we sort of balance the idea of, you know, chapter two in On Tyranny by Timothy Schneider supporting and, and defending institutions, but also needing this to, to happen and, and the impatience that seems to be growing? Well, I certainly understand the impatience. And I also understand the need for urgency here. I guess the only thing I would say that could assure people is it takes a very long time to be able to prove a case like this. You know, the, the fact that you believe it or you want to just pull together, as I did, reports in the public domain are a good start. But to be able to prove a case beyond a reasonable doubt, you would want to take the sources that I have listed in my memo, some of them are anonymous sources in public you know, journalism reports. You would want to find those people and put them in the grand jury and really test their recollections and push them and uh, make sure that this they're going to withstand a withering cross-examination. You would want to corroborate all of that with documents like phone records and maybe bank records and uh, cell site location information, all of those kinds of things. And it takes a lot of time. When you send out a subpoena, you have to wait weeks for the documents to come back. You want to gather all the documents first before you start questioning witnesses so that you can test their memory and their veracity. All of that takes time. I haven't been involved in complex investigations that have taken years, plural, to investigate. We are only one year out from this case. And so I would be stunned if they could 
charge a case this quickly. It would be nice to see more signs from the Justice Department that they're on the job. I think that probably the closest we're going to get is what Merrick Garland said on January 5th when he gave that speech talking about how awful January 6th was and how they are working on it, how they've already charged something like 700 people, and that they were committed to charging everybody at any level, uh, even those who were not present that day. I think that was an effort to say, we're on it, we get it, please give us the time we need. And he also talked about how it was important to start with lower cases and building to higher cases. I think the one thing I would have liked to have heard him say that day a little bit broader was, we are not confining our investigation solely to the activities that occurred on January 6th, but could include, you know, conspiracies arising even before or after that date. But, you know, I, I, he is playing it by the book, which is uh, to neither confirm nor deny the existence of an investigation. We know that Jim Comey got a lot of flack for violating that policy. And as often been said since that day, that the policy is important not just for the routine cases, but also for the hard cases. That's when you most need the policy because uh, it guides decision-making when we face these moments of crisis. And so um, I'm not willing to uh, criticize the Department of Justice just yet. I am hopeful that they are on the case and that they will make the right decision. I'm hopeful that it is one that results in charges, but it may not be. It may be that they look at all the evidence and they see exonerating evidence that is not in the public domain and make a decision not to charge. But uh, I'm hopeful that they're looking at all of these things and will make an appropriate charging decision. Yeah. And I certainly hope, because I think it is definitely in the public interest, that if they decide not to prosecute, that they explain the declination. Yes. So agreed. I think that that would be very important to just sort of let it go. I I, probably isn't the the best, the best idea. Uh, All right. Thank you so much. Everybody follow Barb McQuaid on, on on social media. It's very important. And do what I did. Read this end to end. I know it's very long and in single space, but it's at just security. And uh, it's it's so well laid out. I appreciate your time today. Thanks so much. Really appreciate the chance to talk about it. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning in today. I'll have more content and headlines for you tomorrow. And until then, please take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Take care of the planet. Take care of your mental health and vote blue over Q. I've been AG and them's the beans. The Daily Beans is written and executive produced by Allison Gill with additional research and reporting by Dana Goldberg and Amy Carrero. Sound design and editing is by Desiree McFarlane with art and web design by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. Music for The Daily Beans is written and performed by They Might Be Giants and the show is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, please visit mswmedia.com. MSW Media. <laughs>